If you would open to the book of Titus in your, in your Bible, we're going to look at the last verse in Titus 2, and then we're going to move into Titus chapter 3, uh, those first about eight verses there. Uh, so if you have access to the Bible on your phone or you have a Bible in front of you, we'll also have some verses up on the screen if, if that's a help to you. So we have a lot of things going on. You've got that copy of the bulletin in front of you that uh, gives you some more information. Two weeks from now, moving out to that first Sunday in May, um, if you've been visiting Emmaus for a couple of weeks and you'd just like to find out a little more what's going on or you want to meet some of the some of the staff members here, we have a Discover Emmaus lunch that first Sunday in May. It's a free, no-obligation lunch. If that's of service to you and your family and you want to be a part of that, we'd love for you to be there. If you have a graduate, high school graduate, you know that May 7th is a big day for you and your family as well here at Emmaus as we celebrate graduates. So we've got a lot of those things uh, coming that, that first weekend, not to mention the big community serve day. But this morning, right in front of us, between Easter and all those things about to come, we're trying to answer the question, what in the world happens the week after Easter? We have all this uh, lead up, and then you have Resurrection Day. What happens after Easter? What happens in our church? What happens in our lives? That's kind of the focus this morning. So I want to start reading in Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 15. It's at the very end. Sometimes the Bible breaks chapters in very strange places that don't seem to match exactly. Remember those chapter and verse divisions are not inspired. They were added later, and sometimes they come in strange places. So we're going to read verse 15 and then go down part of chapter 3. Here's what it says. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men." May God bless the reading of his word. So one of the first jobs that I worked, there was this guy there, and this may sound uh, somewhat familiar for people that you know, don't hit anybody next to you, but there was this guy there that if something was mentioned, he would then repeat that as his own idea a couple of minutes later. So you're sitting around in a meeting and somebody says, hey, you know, I think we really need to get sales up in this one particular area. And then he would pipe up in the meeting, hey, you know, I've really been thinking, I think we should get sales up. If we're, 
You're like, well, somebody just said that. Why are, why are you saying? Or, hey, I think we should move, somebody in the meeting would say, I think we should move our next staff meeting to another room. A couple of minutes later, this guy's like, hey, you know what I've been thinking? I've got an idea that'd be really good for us. I think we should move our staff meeting to another room. Like, were you not paying attention? Like, did you not, not hear what was just said? Like, is it your job in life to prevent, present as your own idea what everybody else has already presented? Why are you repeating these things? And I say that cautiously because preachers can be the worst repeaters. Uh, if we don't know what to say, we just repeat what we said before and just keep on going. So why do we repeat these things? Why do you say something and then you feel the need to reinforce it? Why does one person say something and then somebody else come along and repeat it and say it again? I use that example because it's a little bit helpful for what we're dealing with in the book of Titus. Because if you read Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, and you read that section like we did the last couple of weeks, and then you come to chapter 3 and you read it, you're going to think, wow, that sounds really similar. In fact, that sounds almost like exactly what we read before. And the reason that sounds similar is because it is very similar. And here's a couple of charts. And I put these on your notes on the back of the bulletin I thought might be helpful, but there's some charts uh, that I think I put on, put on the screen as well to, to show you this. But if you look at the book of Titus, and on the left side, that chart on the left side, A and A with the little apostrophe is, is the way of saying the opposite of that when you're laying out a chart. So you have the first section of Titus he deals with kind of an opening, establishing the church. Then chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, he deals with troublemakers, people who are causing division, who are false teachers. Then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 14, he lays out what a Christian life looks like, and he lays out the gospel. Well then, C, with the apostrophe, 2.15 to 3.8, he does the same thing, essentially. He says, this is how you live as a Christian, and here's the gospel, and then B with the apostrophe, 3, 9 through 11, he deals with opponents. And then 3, 12 to 15, he reestablishes the church. He says this is what it is to be the church. So you can see this pattern in the book of Titus where he'll repeat purposely these different areas. And right at the core of it, he says this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what the gospel is. Here's how you live it out. You can see it on the right side. So on the right side, that chart is C and C with the apostrophe. 2, 1 corresponds to 2, 15. 2, 2 through 10 goes with 3, 1 through 2, and so on. He's matching these things up because he wants to reinforce that what the gospel is and how it impacts our life is not a one-off. It's not something that you just deal with and then you move on. And this is really helpful the Sunday after Easter. Because we've been talking a lot around here about the church calendar, about how the Christian calendar works itself out. And you come to Maundy Thursday, which was a new thing for some of us, or you come to Good Friday and Holy Week, and then you come to Easter Sunday, and you say, what happens after that? Well, after Easter Sunday, you enter a period where every Sunday after Easter Sunday for the next seven weeks is just called Second Sunday of Easter, Third Sunday of Easter, fourth Sunday of Easter, fifth, and you do that for a 50-day period that leads up to Pentecost. Pentecost this year is June 4th, the Sunday right before Vacation Bible School. So all these Sundays leading up from Easter to Pentecost are called second Sunday of Easter, third Sunday of Easter, fourth Sunday of Easter. Why is that the case? Because the early church leaders knew that Easter wasn't something you experienced one time and then just moved on with. And even better than that, the second Sunday of Easter throughout the church calendar has been called Low Easter. 
or low Sunday, which is very painful for a pastor's heart because it started out being called low Sunday because there wasn't as much ritual or decoration. And then over the history of the church, it held on to that name because there were a lot less people that came back the Sunday after Easter than were here on Easter. So it's always, second Sunday of Easter has always been called low Sunday because pastors see low attendance on, on that day. But there's still the point that each Sunday after Easter is this Sunday of Easter, this Sunday of Easter, this Sunday of Easter. Here's what I want you to hear from all of that. When you experience the gospel in your life, when you experience the power of Easter, the response to that is not what's next. The response to that is not, okay, I've got that, now I'll move on. Okay, I've dealt with that, what do I add to that? When you experience the power of Easter, when you experience the good news of the gospel in your life, when you experience what it is to be saved and to be made right with God, the question isn't, okay, what's next? I can move on to that. The question is, I need to understand the depth of that. I need to truly understand what God has done in my life because the gospel, and we've used this illustration before, but the gospel is as simple and straightforward as a wading pool that a kid can play in but it's as deep as the ocean that we could never truly explore or understand. So it's straightforward. You can present it at Easter, and a child can understand what you're talking about. But there's so much there. There's so much to explore that you spend a lifetime, and you never even scratch the surface of all that it means that Christ died for us, that he rose again, and that we have new life. And so following Easter, you don't move on to something different. You just continue to say, what is it for that power, for that hope to be at work in my life? How do we do this? Well, in these verses, there's three ways that you move on after Easter. Not past the gospel, but deeper into the gospel. So there's three things. The first is you need someone to prod you on, to keep you moving. You're reminded and prodded to keep going. So look in verse 15 of chapter 2. Paul tells Titus in chapter, sorry, in verse 15 of chapter 2, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So he's speaking to Titus and he's saying the things that you just told them in verses 11 through 14, you're going to need to tell them again and again and again. You continue to put this forward. Eugene Peterson, who's a well-known Christian author, he says that it's easy to create interest in Jesus. It's very hard to sustain that interest. And we find that in church. We find that in Christianity, that people can get interested. They can get curious about something. But how do you sustain that interest? How do you keep them going week after week after week? Well, one of the things that God has given us is he's given us the gift of the church, and he's given spiritual leaders in the church to continue to preach God's word. Sometimes in preaching or in coming to church and listening to a sermon, you're tempted to think, you know what? I've been to church a certain number of times. I think I've probably already heard this. Do I really need to go back and hear this again? Well, guess what? We forget. We forget on a regular basis. We forget the gospel. We forget God's goodness. We go through the week and our life meanders all over the place. We get distracted. We go here. We go there. We have all these things pulling us away. And one of God's gifts to us is just that we come back around and we hear the gospel again. The same good news. 
if a preacher feels like they need to stand up and come up with something new and creative every week, if we're not careful, that's another way of saying that the gospel is not good enough to present week after week, day after day, that that's what the people need to hear. Now, hear me out though. There's a form of that preaching that you may have experienced where every Sunday the sermon is the same type of trying to get lost people to respond to Jesus and people are sitting there saying, I want to be fed, I need to hear God's word. That's where we get into when you preach the gospel, you're not only preaching how to be saved, you're preaching the good news of living that out. And so a church needs that week after week. But what I want you to hear in this is that one of the things you need after Easter is you need someone in your life to say, keep going, keep going. In our lives, if we know there's something we're supposed to be doing, I know I'm supposed to be eating better, I know I really need to get out and find a job, I know I really need to fix that relationship with that person, if someone comes up to you and they say, you need to do this, our response is, I know, I know. As in, leave me alone, (laughs) leave me alone. I know if someone responds to you with I know, it's code for leave me alone. I already knew that. But you need somebody in your life to come along and say, keep going, keep going, keep going. In chapter 3, verse 1, Paul tells Timothy, remind them. Remind them to be subject to rulers and to authorities. And then he gives this list of things to remind them. You skip down to verse 8 of chapter 3. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently, or I want you to stress these things. Paul is telling Titus, one of the things that this church is going to need is they're going to need someone to come along and say, keep going. The preacher can do that. That's one of the roles of gathering like this in worship as we rehearse the gospel, we're reminded to keep going. You also need other people in your life who are coming alongside you to say, keep going. A spouse who's able to do this for you, a parent who's able to do this for you, a coworker who's able to do this for you, another student at school that's able to do this for you. If you're out on an island trying to keep going, it's very difficult. But if you have someone else in your life saying, the truth about Easter, that is so important that we have to keep going in it. I'm gonna walk this path with you. Let's do it together. The church is able to do that, and then God's able to bring so many other people into our life to keep that process going. So that's number one. You need to be reminded and prodded to keep going. The number two, which we really want to drill down on, is we need to be reminded of the gospel every day. We need to learn the gospel more every day. Look in chapter 3, starting in verse 3. So chapter 3, starting in verse 3, it says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, and then it continues to go on. In verse four it says, but when the kindness of God our Savior appeared. So you've got this section beginning, and we're gonna drill down on those verses, but we have this section beginning from verses three to seven. This section here, many scholars think, is actually an early hymn, or maybe if not a hymn, it was a creed or something that they would repeat at baptism services. So you saw Stephen's baptism earlier, This passage, Titus 3, 3 to 7, a lot of people think was something that was repeated at these baptism services because it was a way of reminding the people, this is the gospel you've believed in. 
This is the gospel you're continuing to live in, and this is the gospel you need to be reminded of, and you need to learn more and more about every day. So we continue to go deeper into these things. Why do we need that? It's because when you do this, you experience it in fresh ways. When you learn the gospel more every day, when you continue to explore these things, you experience it in fresh ways. You've probably had this experience when you read the Bible. There's a passage of scripture that you've read, you go away from it, and then you read it at another point in life, and something stands out that you never saw the time before. And you think, I know I've read those verses before, I know I've experienced it before, but I've never seen that. Some of you had that experience this Easter. You came up and told me, you said, I learned things this Easter, I saw things this Easter I've never seen before. Did the truth of Easter change? Did we change the message? No. It's just because the more you go with this, the more you learn about the gospel, the more you see the big picture, the more you see how the pieces fit together. When people really get excited about the Bible, when people really get excited about Christianity, it's when they start to see the pieces fit together and they start to see how those pieces fit in to the big picture. Religion, if it's lived day after day, week after week, and it just seems I do this, and I do this, and I read this verse, and I try to read my Bible today, and it never feels connected, yes, it's going to get boring. Yes, it's going to feel stale. Yes, it's going to feel institutional. I'm right there with you. But when things start to connect together, and when you start to see the big picture of what's God, what God is doing, and you start to see these things in fresh ways, that's when it all comes alive. That's when no one has to force you to read your Bible. That's when no one forces you to show up at church because you start to see more of what God is doing. What does it mean to learn the gospel more every day? There's three kind of subpoints on your notes there, three kind of subpoints that, that help us to understand this. The first is we learn more about our condition before Christ. So as you, or without Christ, you might say, as we move on after Easter, one of the things as we learn the gospel more, we learn more about what our life is like apart from Christ. Verse 3, we'll go back there again. It says, We also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. When you look at your life without Christ, if you didn't have the hope of the gospel, if you didn't have the power of God at work in your life, you would look at this list and say, yeah, that sounds about right. I could find myself in those verses were it not for Christ. Now this gets a little bit tricky on one level because if your life apart from Christ was a mess, you were into things you knew you weren't supposed to be involved in, your life was falling apart, it's very easy to look at this and say, yep, that, that was me. But what about a situation where maybe you came to faith early in life, and by God's grace, life never went off the tracks, so to speak. Or maybe you're just a generally nice person, and you say, or you might be tempted to say, you know, if I didn't have Jesus at work in my life, I'd still be a pretty good person. I'd still be doing some pretty good things. How, how do you make sense of the gospel there? Well, there's a couple of things in these verses that really stand out. In the middle of verse 3, one of the descriptions it gives is deceived. 
enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. One of the ways we can be deceived is we can be deceived in the idea of thinking that the goal in life is to be nice. We can be deceived into thinking that we're really a pretty good person as long as we're kind to the people around us and we're trying to do some good things in life. And when it says enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, that's not just enslaved to sexual lust or sexual pleasures. It can be enslaved to lust and pleasures, just the good things of the world. The things that we hold on to, that we would live for, that ultimately won't last. Ultimately will not provide that fulfillment. And this is the one of the challenges that we face here in the part of the world that we live in. And we're helping with a church plant up in Calgary, Canada. And this is one of the things that they face there. How do you proclaim the good news of Jesus to a world where people don't seem to have that need? How do you proclaim the good news of Jesus and say, apart from Christ, you're enslaved to sin and you're dead in those sins, when people look at their lives and say, you know what, I'm better than my neighbor, or life's pretty good as it is, I don't really see why, why I need Jesus. Let me give you a couple of things that are helpful on this. The first is Ephesians chapter 2. When we think about what our life is like apart from Christ, we think about what it is to not be a follower of Jesus. What is the reality of that? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. So apart from Christ, it's not just that we're a bad person. It's not just that we're not living our life the way we're supposed to be. The reality of being separated from Christ is that we're dead in those sins. We're never able to produce or live the life that God has created us to live. So we're dead in those sins in which you formerly walked according to the way of this world. Among them, we too formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. Once again, not just sexual lust, but all those things that we desire in life indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest were. So what we find in these verses is that the goal in life is not to be better than your neighbor. The goal in life is not to be a nice person. The goal in life is not to be a religious person. The reality is that apart from Christ, we're dead. We can never live the life that God created us to live. But what about the nice person? What about the neighbor that does a lot of good things? C.S. Lewis, who was a famous author in the 20th century, wrote a book called Mere Christianity. Uh, some of you may have picked it up and read parts of this along the way. But chapter 4 in Mere Christianity probably does the best job of addressing this idea of I'm a nice person and I don't really need Jesus. Here's what Lewis says about that argument. He says that if your neighbor is a really nice person, but they don't feel any need to follow Jesus, they don't feel any need to worship God, the problem there is them having a nice temperament, them having a nice personality, them having a nice disposition, that's a gift from God. That's a good thing. They are created in the image of God, and that is one of the gifts that God has given them. But if God gives us gifts and we use them for ourselves and we don't return them in worship and glory to him, that's a form of idolatry. And so when you look at someone and you say, man, that is a really good person, I can't see how the preacher could ever stand up and say that they're separated from God. How could you, how could you say that? 
Well, the issue is not whether we're a nice person or not. The issue is whether we see everything that we have has come from God and everything we have is from God and so we're gonna use it for him. We're gonna live for his glory. And so the more we learn about the gospel, the more we learn about what it is to be created by God, the more we realize what our condition is when we're separated from God. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the more we learn about the gospel, the more we learn about God himself. So I learn about me, but then I also learn about God. Verse four, it says that after the description, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. So the more that you learn the gospel, one of the things that happens after Easter is you learn more about, how, about who God is. People in our world, if you just went out to someone and you said, hey, describe God to me. Tell me, tell me what God is like. Oftentimes, you're gonna get a pretty negative description of God. You're gonna get a description of God about someone who's very angry, a God who's very distant, a God who's out to get us. And what you find here in this description of the gospel is a God who is loving, a God who is kind, a God who does not stay far away but comes near to us. Uh, one of the things that I think about in this is those movies you watch, the books you read, about the creepy haunted house down the road and all the kids think that the lady that lives in that creepy haunted house down the road is some terrible person. And then you actually get down there and meet her and find out, wow, she's actually a really amazing person. I think some people in our world treat God that way. God is the being in the haunted, creepy house down the road, and they have all these misconceptions, all these ideas of what God is like. And then you experience God's kindness in your life. You experience God's love in your life. You experience God's mercy in your life. And all of a sudden, this idea that you had of God in your mind is being transformed. What happens after Easter what happens as we worship, what happens as we study scripture, is we come to have a clearer and clearer idea of who God is and how God is at work in our life. We find out that his salvation comes to us not on the basis of deeds which we have done, but according to his mercy. Now back in chapter two, it talked about God's grace that brings salvation. In chapter three, it talks about God's mercy that brings salvation. Sometimes there's confusion about the words grace and mercy. The best way I know to describe this to you is mercy is when we don't get what we deserve and grace is when we get what we don't deserve. So God is true in both of those ways. God is merciful in the sense that he doesn't give us what we deserve to get. God is gracious in the sense that he gives us what we never deserved in the first place, which is hope and life and salvation through Jesus. And that has appeared to us. This word appeared in verse four shows up over and over in the book of Titus. It appears through Jesus when Jesus came, but it also appears to us in the preaching of the gospel. When we hear about Jesus and our eyes are open to that. So it's on the basis, not of what we have done, but of God's mercy. That leads us to number three, or the third thing. So we, we learn about ourselves, we learn about God's character, and then 
under number two, that third subpoint there, is we learn about God's transformation of our life. So as I begin to know the gospel, I know who I am apart from God, I know who God is, and then I know what God wants to do in my life. Look at the end of verse five. At the end of verse five, it says that God's salvation came by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Okay, let's deal with those kind of, kind of in pieces here. When you see that word washing in verse 5, one of the first things that comes to mind is, does that stand for baptism? When it says that you've been saved there in verse, in verse 5 by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, is that a reference to baptism? It's not a reference to baptism in the sense that when you get in the water up there, you're automatically made new by the Holy Spirit. What happens in the water, what happens when someone is baptized, is that becomes an image, that becomes a sign of what God has already done in our lives. The way that we are made new, the way that we are renewed, the way we are given that new life, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when by God's grace he pours out the Holy Spirit on us, we're made new internally, and then what baptism does is it shows people this is what God has done in my life. It becomes a picture of that. And the reason it's so important that baptism is a public thing, that you're doing it in front of other people, is that as people see that baptism taking place, the whole church is participating in some sense in that baptism. So as you watch baptism happen, one of the things that you're doing is you're learning or you're relearning the gospel again in a fresh way. You're being reminded that's what God has done in that person's life, and he's done that in my life as well. So sometimes when we watch baptism as a church, it can feel very passive, but as the church, you're participating in that act of worship. Kids will sometimes ask me, do I get to be baptized over and over again? <laughs> like, is that just a one-time thing, or is that something that I get to do over and over again in life? The way that it works is baptism is intended as a one-time act. It's the way of saying, this is what God's done in my life, and then I'm going to continue to live for him. What you do over and over again is you take of the Lord's Supper. You participate in the with the church in worship. And so baptism is that one-time act. This is what God has done in my life. And then as you celebrate with the church and watching other people baptize, as you celebrate with the church and taking the Lord's Supper, you're rehearsing the gospel. You're relearning that. That's why we love for our kids to be in here to watch baptism. That's why we love for our kids to be in here to watch the taking of the Lord's Supper because every time they watch that, the gospel is operating in their hearts and their minds. They're learning that. They're seeing new things that they wouldn't have seen before. They're asking new questions. These things are, are coming to the surface. And so baptism is meant to operate in that way that it shows us a picture of what God has done. And here's a very important follow-up to that. Sometimes in a church, when you don't see baptism happening, one of the things that happen is that church becomes less engaged in evangelism because we forget about the power of God to save. So let me flip that around to the more positive side. 
there's a momentum factor here. There's kind of a flywheel effect factor that when a church sees people being baptized, that reminds us of God's power to save, that reminds us of God's power to transform people's lives, and then we want to tell more people about that. And the more people that hear that, the more that are baptized. The more that are baptized, the more people that you want to know about that. And so when churches, and and we look at our own grouping of churches that are called Southern Baptists, and when you see baptism numbers going down and down and down, it creates this exponent effect where it just continues to gain momentum, and it's a hard thing to turn that around. Now, we're not going to fake baptize people just so we get excited about telling other people about Jesus. That's not a good thing to do. But what it is a good thing to do is when you see someone's life being changed by Jesus Christ, you want other people to know that. The church that uh, Amanda and I went to when we were in college was outside of Shawnee a little bit. We went to the same college that Jordan and Jarrett, uh, who, who led Music Force this morning, went to. The little church we went to while we were in college, um, small country church, very traditional country western style music. The pastor uh, was a good preacher of God's word. He wasn't flamboyant. He wasn't charismatic. He was just a pretty straightforward guy. But something began to happen in that church where men, 30, 40, 50s, started being baptized. And then they hadn't really grown up in church, so they didn't know any better. So they went back to work and told guys what had happened in their life. Well, those guys were so amazed at the power of Jesus that they came and they were baptized. And they didn't know any better, so they went back and told the guys that they knew. And you had this little country church that wasn't doing anything flamboyant, wasn't doing anything impressive by the world's standards, but people were just being baptized. And then they were going and telling other people, and that is a fun thing to be a part of. And it's nothing that we manufacture, because that salvation doesn't come by the power of man, The work of God's spirit doesn't come by the power of man, but when God pours out his spirit and we see those things happening, we have the joy of living in the power of Easter. And then you get down further in verse uh, verse 7, and you see that one of the results of that is being justified by his grace. We are made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What you learn from verse 7 is that in salvation, when you experience the power of Easter, you're made right with God the judge, which is a good thing. You're justified. You're made right with God the judge. But even better than that, you're adopted by God the Father. When we understand the power of Easter, we are justified. We're made right with God the judge, which is good news. But greater still, we are adopted. We are made an heir of God's family with God the Father. And so once again, the more I experience Easter, the more I learn about the gospel, the more I'm amazed about what God has done in my life. This is the joy of having older adults around in a church who say, this doesn't get boring over your, your life. This becomes more amazing. The more I learn about God, the more I'm amazed about how he's been at work in my life. All right, number three, and we'll wrap up with this. So I learned my condition apart from Christ. I learned more about the gospel. And then finally what happens after Easter is I learned to do good to display Jesus. I learned about myself. I learned about God. And then I learned how to do good. Uh, Let's back up in verse 1. So chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. Paul tells Titus, 
remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. And then listen to verse 2. To malign or slander, to, so to speak words that cut other people down, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all people. When we understand that our salvation is not of our own doing, that it comes by the grace of God, what that creates in us is humility. And when that humility begins to set in, it begins to shape our character. And so the lives we begin to live are lives where we're not cutting other people down with our words, where we're peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration. What happens with verse 2 is it's a contrast to the description of verse 3 of what we were like before we encountered Christ. But what it's really meant to do in verse 2 is it's meant to match up with God's character that's presented in verses 4 to 7. What do we find out about God? God's loving, God's kind, God is merciful, God is gracious. So if that God works in our life, what should be the result of our lives? Loving, kind, merciful, gracious. The more we understand what God has done in our lives, the more we'll understand what he wants to do in our character. And the more we'll understand how he wants to transform our lives. God has done this. He's shown his love, so I'm going to show that to others. God's forgiven me. I'm going to forgive others. God's been merciful to me. I'm going to be merciful to others. If God has done that for us, how could we not do that for others? Then you skip down to verse 8. In verse 8, on the other side of this description, Paul says, This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed in God, that's the foundation, so those who have believed in God will be careful to engage in good deeds. That word engage is an interesting word there. The, the word engage is the word that meant to stand in front of your shop and try to pe get people to come into your shop and buy your things. It was a word for working. So you're not passive. You're not staying inside your business waiting for people to come to you. You're standing out on the street holding the sign trying to get people to pull in at your business. So it's a word that's meant to say, be forward, work, don't be passive. One of the best ways you can show the power of Easter in your life is when you are actively doing your job, <laughs> when you're engaged in work. One of the things that Paul is dealing with in these letters, especially in the book of Titus and the book of 1 Timothy, he's dealing with people who have become busybodies. He's dealing with people who want to sit around behind closed doors and talk theory but they've stopped doing anything with their lives. And Paul says, if you really understand the power of Easter, if you really understand the gospel, you would get off your rear and you would get out of the shop and stand out on the road and do something with your life. That's kind of the idea when he says engage in good deeds. Those who have believed in God are not people who sit around behind closed doors debating theory all day. Those who have believed in God are those who engage in good deeds. What's the result of that? At the end of verse 8, it says those who have engaged in good deeds, these things are good and profitable for men. 
Now, what's the phrase for men? Does it mean it's only good for men? No. For men there at the end means it's not good and profitable for the person who does these things. It's good and profitable for the ones who see the good deed done for them. So let me try to explain that. What he's getting at is when you've believed in God and you realize the result of that's going to impact your character and it's going to impact your actions, when you do those things for God, people who see that will give glory to God. The book of Matthew, Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount and he says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5.17 is Titus 3.8. They fit together. They're meant to say the same thing. When I have a character that shows God's love, when I live life that does good, good things for others, people will see that, and then they'll respond to God. They'll give glory to God. So why do we go out next Sunday morning? Why do we go out for a community serve day? Why do we encourage you to engage in your neighborhood? Why do we say that our goal is not to see how many people, how often we can get them in this building during the week. Our goal is that you would go to work and live out your faith there. Our goal is that you would be with your family and live out your faith there. Our goal is that you would spend time in your neighborhood and live out your faith there. It's because people need to see the power of the gospel on display. How are they going to see that? They're going to see that when a church proclaims and displays Jesus. That's our hope. That's our goal. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to sing a song in response. Father, thank you for the hope that we have through Christ. Father, thank you for the power of the gospel. Thank you for the ways that you want to work in our lives. And God, the more that we know what you've done in our lives, the more we know what it is to respond to you in worship and faith and obedience. God, that we would be a church that proclaims and displays Jesus. Sometimes it's hard to figure out what to do the Sunday after Easter. But God, we want to keep going. We want to keep learning the gospel, and we want to keep living for you. And we do that as we celebrate all that Christ has done in our lives. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.